When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 114, Richard Loses Control and Bards Talk of Owen. I have to start off this episode by addressing a mistake on the previous episode that was released a couple of weeks back. Uh, I had written in the script an incorrect date, and it just kind of rolled into a complete foul-up, and I'm not quite sure where it's come from, whether it was something I read wrong or what exactly happened, but nonetheless it happened, so best to fess up to it. So to be clear, uh, at the beginning of the script, I talked about the Black Prince and Edward III and their deaths, and it and the correct dating is supposed to be that the Black Prince died in 1376, and Edward died in 1377. Uh, thank you to listener John Wallace, who uh, sent that correction through, and like I said, don't know how that happened, but uh, we'll try not to let that happen again. But anyway... With that all out of the way, let's move on, shall we? We talked to some degree about the life of King Richard II in the 1390s last episode and how, as he grew in stature and gained more control, he also sought to gain revenge for earlier affronts. He started to create, first, a group that would follow his rule, basically amongst specific loyalists. He then gave them special designations through badges, which were White Hearts, or deer. During this period, he created a larger bureaucracy which was to manage the finances of England, but also likely to take control away from the Parliament who had dominated affairs prior to this point. It is because of this that Richard starts to use terms that uh, basically kind of separate himself from other kings and princes that had existed before then. Terms like your highness and your majesty start to be used for the king rather than the more humble my lord. He also ritualized the crown in a sense as that word got to bring a greater affinity for the king as God's servant. You know, you were an anointed leader from God. The It was basically the beginnings of absolute monarchy. And this idea that kings are to rule by divine right, something that would become very much in vogue in a few hundred years, but at this point had rarely been talked about with any consistency, certainly nothing like in the Western European world to this point. But it is something that will continue to rise up, and this is just the starting point of it all. In short, Richard was the ideal Renaissance monarch but still living in the Middle Ages and in England, which had a large and politically aggressive nobility. The king had a mind for revenge at this particular stage, and with all the authority and all of the control he had created for himself, he also set his loyalists in positions of power and then turned them against the parliament. 
And in 1397, specifically in July of that year, he arrests the Earls of Gloucester, Urundel, and Warwick. Now we mentioned now we mentioned the death of Urundel last time, but this is where it all takes place. It sets off a litany of events that will create a tidal wave of problems for Richard and his subjects going forward for quite some time to come. Richard was in a period which they refer to as tyranny um, by those specifically who were facing his wrath, which were very many people specifically. Uh, he was a king who had seen rebellions from every level of the citizenry from an early age and was not of a mind to be merciful to those who crossed him. Erndel and Gloucester would be executed. Thomas Erndel would in turn be imprisoned for the rest of his life. He was the brother. And Warwick would be exiled to the Isle of Man. According to Richard, he would be taking on these nobles to thresh the traitors out, even to the husk, as he is quoted to have said. This is not the mindset of someone who's willing to see the other side or to see a different point of view. This was a man and a mind of a man who saw traitors everywhere and evil in the most innocent of decisions. In a dispute between his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, and Thomas Mowbray, the king decided the solution was to exile Mowbray for life and Henry for ten years. The interesting part of this is, or the contention at least by people of that era, is that Thomas was warning Henry about the king and about his tenancies, and Henry was actually, or at least seemingly from my interpretation of it, defending the king, yet he also got a ban for ten years. When Henry's father, John of Gaunt, died in 1399, Richard seized these titles, property and gold, to carry on his quest to make Ireland submit to England. Henry, on the other hand, returned to England at this point to seize the crown. Richard had been away while all this was going on and only returned to Wales to find that his popularity was at an all-time low and not just in England. Henry, on the other hand, had England, and Richard was without any way to carry on. Again, this will be brought up a little bit later as to why that was the case. He surrendered to his cousin in the autumn of 1399. He would then give up the crown and eventually his life when Henry, now King Henry IV, realized that he could not have the symbol of resistance still alive. And even though they were cousins, just because your family doesn't mean you get a pass. And so in February of 1400, Richard II was somehow put to death. Unfortunately, those in the era never knew what happened, or if they did, they never wrote it down. Likely, he was executed in a very simple fashion, possibly had his head cut off, possibly just hung, who knows. Uh, but nonetheless, he was killed for basically being the former king. Henry IV now ruled. In a small area of North Wales, trouble was also brewing, and it would create a headache that would likely take the new king to his grave. A few years after Owen had taken his military service in Scotland, he started to receive various poets and bards into his service, as a lot of nobility did during this period. During these times, men familiar with the demands of patronage spoke highly of their lords, because of course financial gain is always a good thing. Yolo Gok would sing it to him, Baron, I know your lineage, 
as an aetheling from an ancient line. Griffith Lloyd, a poet in 1384, was already linking him to the prophecy of a new leader in Wales. He was to be, in their eyes, a new Cadwaller, or Arthur. As we've discussed previously, this concept and understanding and mythology of Owen started even before he was a leader. But it was something that would happen quite often. Of course, this may be the flattery of poets and bards. You pay, to put it bluntly, to flatter you. It feels good to be compared to the heroes of old. And likely, this was all a fine tradition built up by these and many other artistic types who were looking for steady work in a narrow field. In all likelihood, there were other bards and poets singing and writing about other nobles with ancient lines and noble houses. It's just that they weren't as accurate as it would turn out. The most famous bard of them all, William Shakespeare, considered Owen, when writing for the Welsh line of the Tudors, to be a noble, educated, and generally mysterious and magical leader. He quotes in his play Henry IV, In faith he was a worthy gentleman, exceedingly well-read and profited, in strange concealments, valiant as a lion, wondrous, affable, and as bountiful as the mines of India. Yolo's most intriguing poem on Owen, formed before the bard had actually passed away, and before Owen had gone to war, gave a description of the household as at peace with itself, one of considerable renown and success, one that archaeology has proved to be an accurate ideal, at least, as evidenced by the fact that most of the buildings mentioned in the poem appear to exist, and more to the point, appear to exist from exactly the type of material that he talked about. While there was certainly exaggeration, for obviously he was praising a lord in a way to stroke his ego and to gain some financial remuneration, yet you can understand why Gok may consider this land as a peaceful one during a time when unrest was everywhere. To give the bard his due, let's look at what he says about Glyndor. Now, this is quoting a very small snippet. There is much more to this that goes on and on and on, describing every one of his houses and his churches and all sorts of interesting bits and pieces, which are great if you're a historian or an archaeologist and want to look into it. But if you really do want to look into it, there are places where you can read the whole thing. But I just wanted to read this bit because I think it's it's an interesting snippet into his life. And Aiello says... The best drink and braggots. A braggot is a drink that's made from ale and fermented honey, or from ale sweetened and spiced. Every drink, white bread and wine, and his meat and his fire for the kitchen, shelter for the bard, Iolo, obviously, whithersoever they come. Every day all may have their fairest timberless and blameless lord. Alice was a high-status home, which, of course, Glyndor would obviously be living in at this stage in his life. Of the kingdom, God blessed on it, and the best of wives, blessed am I in her wine and mead, a fine lady of knightly line, most generous by nature, her children come in two by two, a beautiful nest of chieftains. This peaceful scene, of course, would not last. Most of the family would be very much embroiled in the war to come. 
In a way, for those of you who may have watched Game of Thrones, it was like the Starks before the king arrived. Jovial, happy, noble, and living in a world that would soon be far from where they had been. The peasants and commoners, and even some of the nobility in Wales, were not as peaceful, and were obviously far from happy with the state of affairs in Wales. The death of Richard, far from settling matters in Wales at least, seemed to have been the match for the kindling. The conquest was now a hundred years old, yet the monarchy and the English lords were not yet in full control in Wales, especially in areas that were not under the control of the marcher lords specifically. Distrust at various levels were rising, as we've covered in episodes past, and did not go away once the monarch changed or the leader died. Even if the person who is perceived as to be the next man of prophecy passed away, there was still this sense, this ideal that still resided in both the Welsh and in the paranoia of the English. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Richard, as Edward II had previously, raised loyalists among the Welsh nobility. There were times a part of his white hearts. 
So it comes as little surprise that they were disadvantaged by the rise of Henry IV and his allies. Yet, even if they were loyalists in parts of Wales, it seems not everyone was happy to have the king back in Wales when he arrived in 1399. The Welsh, driven by Henry's seizing government, revolted, first in Carmarthen in the summer of 1399. This coincided with Richard, who had landed in West Wales at the time, in his attempt to take back the kingdom. His supporters and army ran into the Welsh, at least the Welsh peasantry and probably some of the commoners, who were said to have harassed them as they went into Carmarthen. They robbed the English of arms and coins as they made their way through the countryside. This alone would point to a beginning of a popular revolt combined with the general lawlessness that it arrives when a government cannot stamp its authority in a region. This likely shows that Wales was prepared to go off with or without Glyndwr. Henry, for his part, would also find that his supporters were robbed as they crossed the border near Flint, as they were actually going to meet up with Richard, who was going to announce his abdication. Wales had become a dangerous place for the English nobility. The supporters of Henry were attacked violently, and at least some were robbed, at least, and others were murdered at worst. A French knight, Jean Chrétien, who was there during this period, put it down to loyalty to Richard, who they viewed, at least the French, as one of their own, since he was married to their princess. However, historian Gideon Burrow considered that this was likely a stretch of imagination. It was, in part, written a couple of years after the fact, and also, and likely it was about building support for the French, for the Welsh rebels, and to build up a need for intervention through probably financing and eventually through arms. So, nonetheless, it did show that the anti-English feeling was running high, and likely this had nothing to do with loyalty to Richard, but rather anger and malice that had been brewing over the last probably a hundred years, you might even say. Whether out of loyalty or sedition, though, Wales was revolting by 1399, a year before Owen Glyndwr made public his support of that particular revolt. These revolts were not continuous, as there is no record of any leaders or growing movement, but rather they felt like a tide, rolling in and out from 1399 to the summer of 1400. Really, there would be a spark here, a spark there. Like I said, they weren't organized, they weren't coordinated, they weren't warfare as we would think of it, they weren't even guerrilla warfare, they were just seething anger being carried out against those seen as an oppressor, which is the only way I can interpret it, because effectively it seems so widespread in those specific areas where these happened, and under normal circumstances with armed guards and armies, you wouldn't think people would be taking the risk to attack a nobility that up to this point, must have felt fairly secure crossing the countryside. And yet, they continued, and spurred on by various events, grew and grew and grew. This goes back to a conversation that we'll have many times about which came first, the revolt or the man. And obviously, in this case, the revolt came long before the man did. Owen was just yet another name in a long line of names of people who were put in positions where they become important. And 
we always have to remember that just because they are important to history and are remembered because of their leadership skills, it doesn't mean that what happened wouldn't have happened anyway under a different leader. In fact, his cousins that we'll talk about here in a moment may have had as much to do with what happened as anybody else and could have ably have led the defense of Wales against the English during this time period. So while Owen is important and critical to the story that we're telling, he isn't so critical that it couldn't have happened with someone else. And we have to remember that there are forces at work far beyond one individual that set this all in motion and, and create this circumstance. Because realistically, had the English treated the Welsh with more respect and with more sensitivity, it's very likely that this wouldn't have happened in the first place. Combine that with the fact that the English had been almost entirely at war with the French for the entire century after and before this, you have what amounts to roving brigands who have been trained in how to fight, raid, and pillage, more or less running the countryside. And with all that in mind, you get these sort of instances growing and happening. So you put that into the hands of someone who's been in the military, who knows how to lead men and how to coordinate and has a really good understanding of the English strategy. And of course, it's going to make it even more important and even better in the war to come. And certainly, as I said, Owen had all of that and had had the experience of working with the English military and working with Bolingbroke specifically. So he knew what was coming and how to deal with it in a way that wouldn't have happened under the old Welsh princes because they wouldn't have had that experience or the financial backing. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we talk about this. Yet in each of these instances, these rebellions were crushed, at least up to that point, by the English governments, or at least quelled, but the seizing sense that things were about to explode was obviously in the air. For his part, Griffith Lloyd, who had lauded Owen earlier, called out his noble for his inaction, for his inability to live up to the prophecy. He was annoyed at him for not getting involved, for sitting on the sidelines and basically doing nothing. Owen, for his part, was more concerned about his own issues rather than the affairs of Wales in general. In the summer of 1400, after the turmoil in England had lessened with the death of Richard and many of his allies, an old Richard loyalist serving with him on the Irish campaign in 1398, Rhys Tudor, and his brothers rose up against the English in their home in Anglesey. One of the brothers, Marduth ap Tudor, would have a son named Owen who would go on to be a major player the next decades in English politics, and whose grandchild, Henry Tudor, would be better known to us now as Henry VII, King of England. The Tudors would appeal to their cousins for help. While some historians claim that it was the other way round and that the cousin appealed to them, Burrow, for one, could find no evidence of an uprising in Anglesey having anything to do with Owen Glyndwr, and contends that the king's attempts to put down the North Welsh revolt did not include Glyndwr at all. His home was not sacked or seized. No contemporary records show him involved before September, this happening, of course, in August. But even if he was not involved, 
either through his own troubles or through the calls of his cousins, he came and finally and fully represented himself on side with the Welsh rebels and started a war that would consume Wales for almost a decade and a half. And while the great powers of the medieval era fought a proxy war through Wales, it would leave the country poorer and with a grievance that would last into this century. It would make Englandur a household name and would give, eventually, the monarchy in England to a very famous house that effect on the world still lives to this day. Thank you for listening and thank you for responding and getting back to me and talking to me and asking me questions. I appreciate it. I've really appreciated chatting with you all over the last few weeks as, uh, as we've been back at it. Um, I hope you'll continue to listen in and continue to send in questions and correct me when I get things wrong, because certainly I am not without fallibility when it comes to stuff like this. But either which way, you can reach me uh, at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can always join us on Facebook at, at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Until next time, everyone, take care, have a great day, and we'll talk to you later. Goodbye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.